The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, author Zochata Tat stops by to tell us all about the biography I Am Omri, written about her father, Cambodian kickboxing legend Omri Ban, and his amazing story from champion to miraculous survivor of the Cambodian genocide to refugee and finally martial arts teacher with the oldest kickboxing gym in the West, open six days a week for the past 33 years. It's an amazing story. So here we go. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast, begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast, episode 237. Another beautiful day in Ojai. May is treating us quite fine. The rain has made everything green. It's kind of holding that way. And next to me, as usual, in the dappled light of our lovely porch, Daniele Bolelli. Yes, indeed. Before we get going with this epic episode, let's give a couple of thanks. Of course, as always, thank you to Shore Design T-shirts. Who have So if you guys are in the market for T-shirts or pants or anything of that sort, check out Shore Design T-shirts' websites. I want to give you a shout-out to a listener, uh, Joe, who's created his website called the Comfortably Crazy Woodcraft. Again, that's called ComfortablyCrazyWoodcraft.com. Check it out. He's trying to do something else with his life, and uh, I like the concept. I like his wood art so check him out speaking of check him out as usual thank you to the people sending us wine which is always deeply appreciated omsellers and materrawines.com and more importantly thank you to every well not really more important because honestly anybody who give us anything is we love them to that but of course when it comes from uh, sweet individuals such as you listening who decide to part with your hard-earned money to drop us a few bucks, is always deeply appreciated. We haven't done this in a while because we've been sort of slacking on the release uh, schedule, so the list may be long. I've got to wrap it really fast. Let the pottering begin. Thank you to GlobalHobos.com, Ed, Ed and Carrie O, Keegan Walsh, Jim D'Amico, Samuel Rudelli, Joseph Lord, Stephen Rado, Eric Adam Collins, Donald Chipwitten, Lane Raper, Luis Pesquera, Yanni Linima, Jesse Rantakangas, Aaron Weisner, Clayton Payne, Stephen McKee, Daniel Fischel, Frederick Kahn, Jonathan Waterloo, Justin Howell, Ryan Merkland, Stephen Notariani, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunica, Istis Juska, John Vergara, Nicola Tony, Joseph Lord. Yes, we wow. did it. What a, what a list. Thank you, you so much. You can do that so quickly because these are not unfamiliar names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all uh, our regulars. So appreciated. This is, uh, 
If you want to join this brave band of heroes, that's always an option. Um, you get, you can use PayPal, paypal.me forward slash first initial of my first name. So the letter D and my last name, B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Again, paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. You can use my email, bodhi1974 at yahoo.com. They all go to the same place. So that works. I have a terribly embarrassing story I want to share with you. Please go for it. I was at Dodger Stadium a few weeks back, and it was Jackie Robinson Day, so they handed out jerseys. We were there a bit early, but I went in. I used the restroom, moved my way, and we were way at the top. So five stories up, I realize I don't have my phone. Mm-hmm. Oh. I had that phone in the bathroom. So I marched all the way back down. Looking every which way, I stopped in the store to look at a hat. All these things, undo, undo. So when I finally get back, I was like, could I possibly have thrown the phone into the trash can. No. So I reached a moment. Now think about this. Wasn't going to do that, but there was a sweeper set. So I took this trash can that was empty when I was there 37 minutes earlier, but it was full of the top with who knows of course. what kind of insanity inside yes. of it. Jesus. And I dumped it into the floor and started sweeping through it. And like hours later, it wasn't in there. But eventually someone did turn it in and found it the next day. Oh, so that's, that's crazy awesome. by itself. But in that time, now being without my phone, having to listen to terrestrial radio with commercials, not having every song in the world in my pocket, not having my podcast, it was almost impossible that to drive like anywhere. Agony. Yeah. No, uh, you know, <laughs> I come in from Oxnard to LA four times a week, so I need to know oh. which the good path is going to be, you know? Oh. And not having that, so it's just like a gamble, like, mm, I hope the 101's rolling today. <laughs> and then I thought, what three things in the world? would have dug to the bottom of the nastiest trash can in Los Angeles for, and there weren't many things on that list. The phone was high up. And that bothered the shit out of yeah, me. Yeah, of man. course. You know, maybe a gold bar, a particularly awesome phone number, but not much. Right. Winning lottery ticket. Yeah, that's rough. We're in trouble. I mean, yeah, we have so much of it, of uh, what we, yeah, like what you said, you know, from music to everything. It's, it's They've got us. And, it's and the next step will be just a, in your brain directly yeah no questions is going to happen uh, yeah AI is Gen Xers. i don't think we're available we're too little too analog yeah. for that yeah it's freaky definitely anyway on with the show i apologize oh no worries no that's actually i'm glad it that it worked out beautifully though that they brought it back that's you'd figure a phone that you know phones are expensive People well you know it was it. really well done and so as i was doing my sweeping the guy whose job it was to sweep was oh sir no no let me help I, like, oh, I made the mess and, and he I told him what's going on and he took me directly to fan services. It's like these are the folks who help you find it. Okay. And then, then wouldn't take a tip. I was like, no one would help me out this way. Oh, I can't accept your money. And they were great and I might have found the phone that day, but I don't know what kind of fucking phone I had. So oh, that's fine. I, I think I have a yeah, Motorola right. and I told him it was a Samsung. Right, right, right. So I wasn't gonna find it <laughs> of anyway. Course. But then, yeah, that night, emailed him again, and within 24 hours, they're like, come meet us here, come through this doorway, be here by then, and we got it. I was like, clearly this has never happened before, and they said, no, there's 187 from For the real. past two weeks. People are actually nice. That's cool. Those folks were really nice. No, but I mean, not just them, like the people who turned them in. It's like, 
Yeah, well, I mean, what figure everybody do for you. Yeah, I don't think you can silence for parts and shit. And I guess so. I guess some of us know how much they would miss theirs. Yeah, but I mean, that's usually doesn't stop most people. So that's I nice. Think that's the only thing that keeps people from doing the right. It keeps people to do the right things. Like, what if the shoe is on the other foot? Totally. No, that's but the that's the way I look that's at nice it. That's nice. That's somebody. Not everybody, for sure. But yeah, that's somebody. It's nice that somebody think it that way. That's somebody good. Did. I like it. So there's a monocle of hope. Yeah. That, before the AI takes everything over next week. No, but that's a good story. I like it. And that's why I'm very concerned about my addiction to the phones. And I think we should all be. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately inevitable where <sighs> we're at. But yes. It's hard to accept. It's embarrassing. That's a hard, dark, black mirror to look through. Uh, that's life. <laughs> all right. Interview time. Here we go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. So, thank you so much for coming here. Uh, maybe if you want to introduce yourself with a proper pronunciation that's not butchered by my Italian accent of your name, and uh, that would be great. Sure, it's a pleasure. My name is Ochata Tat, and I am the youngest daughter of Omri Ban. Sweet. Thank you so much. So today we'll chat, uh, there's a bunch of stuff we could chat about. I'd love to chat about uh, your dad's life, the book uh, I Am Omri that you guys wrote for, it's like, it's a full-fledged biography, but more than, I mean, there's of course his life story, there's intersex with the history of Cambodia, intersex with you growing up in US the way you did. It's, uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of directions we can take it on. But I guess to give people a little bit of background about who your father is, um, take it however you want. Sure. To growing up, the gym was all I'd ever known. Mm-hmm. I always knew my dad as Omri Ban, the kickboxing master, the kickboxing instructor. And I didn't really know his story up until three years ago when I started writing the book. I'd only really? ever, yeah, I'd only ever known and regarded my dad as just my dad. He was no more than just my dad. But my dad was one of the most famous and prolific figures in Cambodia in the 1960s and 70s. Then the Cambodian genocide happened from Mm -hmm. 75 to 79. He escaped, made his way out to America, and the rest is history. I mean, so growing up, you knew that he had this, uh, you know, he was a famous kickboxer, but that's pretty much all you knew. And then uh, digging, doing the research, you found out just how famous and how big of a deal that was in Cambodia at the time. As far as, you know, you grew up, like you were born when he was already... How old was he? Was he 50? My dad was 56 when 56, he had me. 56, right. He's a pretty busy man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another one of the trends that emerges from the book. In addition to his fighting career, it seemed like he had a clear other passion that ladies were very much uh, at the front front of the things he's interested in in life. <laughs> so, yes. But, uh, yeah, how many kids overall did you have? That's a tricky one. That's <laughs> a like, tr- I mean, I'm, I'm really ruminating on that. <laughs> yeah. That that we know of, about eight. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. After a busy day at kickboxing. Yeah, exactly. The life of fighting and fucking. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that was the original title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, it was. The two Fs. Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. I remember you also told me a story that I thought was hilarious that when you guys went back to Cambodia, like one of the first thing he already had like three dates going or something, and it's like all on Facebook. He was ready. He had an agenda and an itinerary. Wow. <laughs> and by then he was what seventy eight, seventy seven. He was seventy eight. Seventy eight. Yeah, that's bad. It's like hold the power to him. <laughs> that's uh, that's funny. So yeah, you grew up with him. Uh, because, yeah, he raised you, right? Like, you were with him most of the time. My dad essentially raised me as a single father. Yeah. I was also raised at the gym, so mm-hmm. a few of the trainers would watch me. But it was primarily my dad and my oldest sister, Manila. Right. They were the ones uh, kind of keeping... A, and that must have been a trippy, uh, a trippy upbringing, just literally growing up as a gym kid, as, uh, you know, you're the daughter of the headmaster, but, you know, you... Yeah, I used to also... I used to make the joke that I'm immune to all diseases because I made my first steps and walks. Of course, in that dirty crawling gym floor. in dirty jeans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nasty. But it's yes, that if you survive, that will make you tough. That's for sure. We yeah. have the same concept by going to Santiali the day before Christmas. Uh-huh. Where all the knockoff products of, of Los Angeles are gathered. Where every <laughs> single person has touched everything. Yeah. And, yeah, if, if you yeah, survive yeah. that, you're going to make it through the year. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> What was, I mean, because there's such a big age gap and, you know, him being your primary caretaker. How was your, how was and how still is your relationship with him? Like, how did, because, um, you know, you got, if you picture a 56-year-old guy raising a tiny little girl and then even, you know, growing up, he's, you know, by the time you're a kid, he's in his 60s and stuff. And, you know, he grew up in Cambodia from a whole different cultural background in that sense, leaving out of the gym pretty Like, how did that play out for you? How did you, what's your experience with it? My father and I had, we were always close just because he was, he raised me as a single father. Mm-hmm. And after writing this book and after this book coming out, we've gotten so much closer, which mm-hmm. I didn't think was possible. And I used to really resent my dad growing up just because he had me at such an older age. Of course. And he picked me up from school and the kids would tease and ask me if it was my grandfather or of even great-grandfather. Yeah. I'd lie and say I, I didn't know him. Right. But it was just my dad just yeah. picking me up from school and you know I'm telling all the kids I don't know him, but they're seeing me get in his car. And yeah, I, I resented him so much as a kid just because, and, all, and also he, every day he would tell me, you know, I can die tomorrow. Papa can die tomorrow. Right. He talks to, about himself in third person. That's like, always a reassuring thing to say to a little kid. Yeah, right? almost, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, by the way, how was your day at school? Yeah, yeah. You know I can die, die tomorrow, tomorrow, right? <laughs> and I'm your only caretaker. But yes, uh, <laughs> now let's do some homework. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll go train for a few hours after. But yeah, he was always preparing me for his death. Right. So I had to deal with a lot of that growing up. And I also felt guilty for really existing because... I'm the only child that my dad has taken care of. Mm-hmm. He's had countless kids before me, but he never raised them. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, wrote in the book, but he left my half sibling's mom for my mom to just raise me. Right. And my mom's daughter, mm-hmm. so a stepdaughter. I felt a lot of guilt growing up. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I guess it's a. Uh 
it's a complicated one, right? Because on one end, you feel guilt. On the other end, because you have a somewhat more privileged position in one way, because he's actually taking an active interest and raising you. Yeah. On the other end, you are getting that, which is a good thing. On the other end, it is coming from him being so much older. There's this huge generation gap. So, I mean, yeah, I can see how that would be complicated. How did you navigate your way through that? Like, Because, of course, I mean, I'm sure rationally, you know, guilt is A, it's not your fault. B, it doesn't help you or anybody else. So, of course, rationally, we can sit down and go like, guilt is kind of useless in that scenario. But, of course, it's hard to get rid of it or to grow out of it. How was your journey through that, dealing with that kind of guilt? Like This book, this book and being able to just write everything out. I mean, the whole experience of writing it down and talking to my dad, talking to my siblings and asking mm-hmm. them questions. The whole process has been extremely cathartic for me, but it's still something that I'm working through. Right. So it sounds like, I mean, for you writing this book has been like really a healing journey really in something that has helped you get to know him better, get to understand not only your relationship with him, but also, I'm guessing, your view of everything of how you are raised, how you grew up, how everything about it. So, I mean, in that sense, even if... This is one of the cool things sometimes about writing a book like you did with this, that if the book hadn't been read, if nobody bought a single copy of the book, it would still be a super success because you're doing something that was is so essential for, for you, for your healing. The fact that on top of it, people will read it, and that's like icing on the cake, you know, that's an extra. But like the, the thing itself, the process of going through this with your father, I think then in and of itself is fantastic. It's a beautiful thing. Now, one thing we should mention, I guess, your dad uh, has been teaching, what, 35 years now? How long in uh, in Long Beach? Nearly uh, 36 years. 36 years, right. So he has had this... uh, one of the oldest kickboxing gyms in uh, Just the West. In the West period, period. right? <laughs> yeah, anywhere. And has been in Long Beach this whole time. And uh, Long Beach, which, by the way, for people who are not familiar with, as the largest Cambodian community outside of Cambodia. It's, uh, it's really kind of, there's a major ethnic enclave. There's a little Cambodia town. There are Cambodian restaurants everywhere you go. There's a whole, th- so if you look for Cambodian community outside of Cambodia, of course, there are many others, but that's probably the number one spot in the world. So it kind of makes sense that he has been an institution in Cambodia town and as part of Long Beach for so long. The For you, Growing up in the gym, what's your take on it? Because, of course, it's not the way most people grow up. It's not, you know, you have an older immigrant parent who's spending his day teaching primarily insanely tough guys how to fight in the ring and win. Being the tidy little girl who's crawling along the mats and eventually get it. Like, how does that shape your view of the world, I guess? I think up until four years ago, when I had gone to college, I lived a very linear life. Just the way I thought, the way I lived my life. I lived the life of just a serious athlete. Mm-hmm. I mean, right after school, I would just go to the gym, help him train the adults in the kids' class. Um, we were 12, holding pads for like big guys. Right. And that, that's all I'd ever known. Mm-hmm. I didn't start 
exploring discovering my own interests and hobbies until after high school right it's still something that i'm still struggling with there's a lot of things that i have to unpack and work through right now but i also i also wouldn't change it for the world just because growing up with my dad as an athlete and growing up in the gym i'm so in tune with my body Mm -hmm. and my dad's always instilled in me the number one importance is taking care of your health yeah. and also mental health too. Of course. Yeah. Of course. How did that like for conversations with your grade school, other grade school kids in junior elementary, junior high, high school is like when, uh, you know, you chat with other kids and your life is obviously unlike any of theirs. How was that received? How did people respond? I was always the tough friend. Yeah. If two of my friends were in a fight, they'd say, I'd get Zoe to beat you up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell Zoe. And I'm like, I guess I'm the one. Yeah. To <laughs> You're the, the enforcer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's actually really funny. Growing up, people thought that we were wealthy. Mm-hmm. People thought that I was wealthy because my dad was this grandmaster and he owned a gym. But the reality is it, we live in a shack and it's check to check and it's such a hard life. Right. Yeah, these are clearly people who haven't been around martial arts schools <laughs> very much because if anybody thinks that you get really wealthy <laughs> running a martial arts gym, probably not. Yeah. I mean, there are a few cases, but that's extremely rare. You yeah. know? That's not a... Especially the way your dad would do it where it's kind of like, you know, if people didn't have money, he, he, they are nice enough, he let them train anyway. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's not exactly around as a profitable business, you yeah. know. It's, it's like, not exactly lucrative, right. that's for sure. It's, well, Long Beach's pretty rich too, isn't it? I mean, especially like coming out of the harbor, some of those houses along there are ridiculous. Depending on the area yeah. of Long Beach. Right now, I, I live in Belmont Shore. Oh, nice. Pretty nice, more opulent area. Yeah, yeah two years ago uh-huh. I moved during the pandemic right. and that also that created so much contention between my father and I I'd only ever lived with him oh I see but I couldn't deal with living with him and everything else also right. like I wrote in the book our house is like a cheap hostel like a cheap motel random people were just <laughs> in and out I'd go home after work and it's like who's his auntie in my bed and he's like oh it's your auntie I've never seen this woman <laughs> in my life <laughs> I've never seen this woman in my life so it's taking that community idea a little too far, huh? <laughs> where it's just... All, all, he's truly altruistic, is right. what it is. Which is sweet, but sweet, yes. Sweet, but it's a double-edged sword. Of course. Yeah. Until you're fifth in line for the bathroom in the morning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, not quite fantastic. And someone's eating my leftovers that I was looking forward to all right. day. Oh, bad roommate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a problem, yeah. No, and in fact, I mean, some parts of, yeah, you, Richie, you're right. Some parts of Long Beach are fancy and awesome. Other parts, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> especially, especially now is getting a little better, but even not that long ago. And definitely for you growing up, man, some parts are nasty. That's where there are a ton of gangs, you know. That's actually where Snoop is from originally. And that's the whole great. Long Beach gang culture. There was a huge you element. to Compton? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's the, the safe spot. But uh, <laughs> yeah, man. No, there are some parts of Long Beach where I remember. Even I, like, I lived in Long Beach from. Uh, where Long Beach were you in? I was living kind of right at the edge. I was living on uh, like Seventh and Coronado. Oh, okay. So it's right it's where it's... a lot better it's these days. Still, huh? It's a lot better these days. It's a lot better these days, but it's still kind of at the edge, right? It's like liquor store on the corner, homeless guys everywhere, and that's the okay part. The problem was 
you go down a few more blocks and now you really want to watch your back because there were some part like when you made it to places like cherry or something that's where it started getting a little intense yeah and and it's like that it's like all of la right i mean all of us actually where you're like in one block and these like fancy houses and no crime and you go two blocks down and you better wear a bulletproof vest because it gets a little intense yeah that's not the feeling i got i went straight to the <laughs> tuna boat and headed out yeah and yeah no like and there is five thousand trump flags are along the along the uh harbor there really was it very yeah yeah, I yeah. you were almost orange county at that point i guess totally and in fact that's what it is is like uh, that's why in fact one thing that tripped me out coming from italy because italy you know you got entire neighborhoods where it's clearly good or bad yeah Coming from Italy to U.S., I was like, you, you would be on one street that is like coolest place, rich and everything, and it would be like, don't cross there. But I'm like, it's one light. It's right there. And it's like, yep, that's a whole different story. And I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's... Uh so yeah, Long Beach, especially, you know, now less so, but when you were growing up, definitely a rough environment for sure. Very rough. I, I still get surprised when I tell people I'm from Long Beach and they go, Oh, yeah, Long yeah, Beach, isn't course. it? Like, I, I didn't realize we still have that reputation. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. <laughs> you know, depending on what they heard, it could have run into the rich experience. Yeah. The, oh, everything is fancy and cool. Or you could have had the other one. Or yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky gig, that's for sure. The, um, and in that sense, you know, the culture of the gym, I know like your dad writes, uh, you know, among my students, I had uh, police officers and gang members. I had, you know, there was like everything you could think of going through the doors of the place. How was it, uh, how was that aspect? Like in terms of the, the people you would interact with on a regular basis, like was did you feel much kind of like the gang culture there or not so much growing up was um my dad had a program in the 90s so i wasn't like i was born mm -hmm. in 2000 but my dad had a gang intervention program with where c police and ex-gang members or current gang members are trained together so i wasn't around for that right but i think maybe around after 2007 is when i became cognizant and actually mm -hmm. remembering you know, the people that I would interact with at, to, at the gym. And it was beautiful. I mean, no matter who you were, what job you had, you know, your your status or whoever, you're just another student when you're inside right. the gym. Yeah. And we really are like a family. Right. I used to, you know, when people would say, oh, our gym, our facility is like a family. I mean, our gym is, you can train there for a week and you're already part of the family. Right. It's really beautiful. And I think that's one of the things that I found always fascinating about martial arts these days because, you know, when you look at American society as a whole, it's so, like we have been talking about it for a few episodes, it's a recurring theme that comes up where it's like there's so much loneliness. There's so much people feeling isolated, people feeling they have no friends, people. So they, there's a tremendous need for community which yeah. is mostly unmet in the life of majority of Americans. And so even something like being part of a martial arts gym, I honestly think that there's a huge element why people even stick to it and participate. It's not because they like fighting that much. <laughs> it's because they may start with the idea, oh, I like it, whatever, or they go to be in shape, or, and then they in love with the fact that they see the same people all the time you you make friends there, there is an actual community yeah 
Now, of course, it's a far cry from, uh, well, the way you guys do it is different. You know, you look at the typical martial arts gym. They all say, oh, no, we are like one big family. They're like, we don't really talk outside of <laughs> beating each other up. So it's like, we're really not. But, but even then, never mind the way you guys do it, which is definitely more real. But like, even at the milder level, you know, from my point of view, I can go like, oh, but that's not really like a family. But when you compare to the complete lack of family or community, even a little bit goes a long way. And so even that is something that I really feel it's a huge element that attracts people to things like that, to join into sticking with it, to all of that, because we need it. And objectively, so at a societal level, there are not many things that provide it. So it's, uh, I guess, one thing that I have always wondering as we were chatting, in terms, you know, you grow up stereotypically or not you grow up in an environment that's filled with testosterone right it's like there's this very macho vibes of uh, i mean like give me the percentages what do you think is the percentage of women who are in the gym at uh at, at of, your, of what men of women who show like who participate like how may what's the ratio like men slash women in the gym 95.5. That's what I figure. Right? Maybe maybe 97.3. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's about what I figure, right? It's a very male-dominated. Male yes. Yeah, very male-dominated. Exactly. You know, you get, uh, and not only in numbers, but also the energy. You know, that's, it, the whole game is about fighting. And again, it's not a martial art gym like, you know, you're doing modern wushu where it's uh, aesthetic and pretty, it's athletic, but it's also more, it's about fighting. You know, it's about like your dad made a living going in the ring and fighting. And then he has been teaching with that mindset. And, so it's like, how did that play for you in terms of your sense of uh, femininity and uh, dealing with gender roles and dealing with stereotypes? But like, take it however you want. But I'm curious because it seemed like a big topic in terms of, you know, a picture, a little girl being raised in an environment that's like mean, tough, sweaty guys. It's, <laughs> I'm sure that does something that's a different experience for most people. So what's your take on it? It's so fascinating. I was just talking about this the other day. So I don't really have a label of my sexuality. I just, I, li I like who I like and what I like. But I was always a quote unquote tomboy growing up and also growing up with a gym uh -huh. around mostly, you know, very you know, macho, testosterone headed men. And for a long time, this actually, it's a really funny story, but because I was such a tomboy growing up, my sister was so obsessed with like putting me in dresses and stuff. And for Halloween, she wanted me to be, going on a side tangent, she wanted me to be a princess for Halloween. But instead, I'm like, no, I want to be a kickboxer. Of course. Put my kickboxing <laughs> shorts. And she's like, why do you have to do this? Please just wear this dress for me. Just once. It was the worst, the worst time of my life. And <laughs> yeah, I, I was always so just... I, I felt so far and disconnected from being really feminine mm -hmm. just because growing up at the gym, you know, like being masculine is of all course. I'd ever known. And it's something that I still struggle with today. Like today I present more feminine, but as I go out, I think, oh Jesus, I feel like I'm, I'm presenting very masculine today. And it almost makes me cringe because mm -hmm. I don't want to present as that. Yeah. So even just going into womanhood, that, that was also such a confusing time for me. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. So you're kind of still 
figuring out the balance for you, like who you want to be in a way and yeah. how you want to go about it. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Did that make for awkward, uh, other than being the official bodyguard of everybody, did that make for weird conversations in high school with like other girls or how, how was that? Yeah. I, I, because I was, again, quote-unquote, more, you know, masculine or tomboy yeah. growing up, when I did come out or tell my friends, my girlfriends, yeah, I'm also into women, or, you know, right. I date who I date, and they're like, oh, God, I hope you didn't, do you like me? <laughs> and I get a lot of that. Right. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. But it's, it's also really interesting just because I was, I felt more masculine growing up. Whenever a boy was attracted to me, I think he was closeted or he was mm-hmm. gay because oh, I thought I was, I also yeah, thought yeah, myself as like a little like boy. I have yeah, such, so, a such a masculine person. That, yeah. So that's really interesting that you like me. Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. And then I feel like this is almost gossiping, but also, God, a lot of my dad's students has confessed to liking me or being attracted right. to me. And it's like, it's, I'm your master's daughter. Right, Jesus right, Christ. right. How, disrespectful that's funny it's also comical though <laughs> but at the same time you know think about it the other way it's like when you spend uh, as some of these guys do all their free time is spent in the gym they are gonna see you they're gonna be like you, you become friends they get to know you they're of course they're gonna like you yeah. you know it's like who else are they gonna like in that <laughs> sense you know it's like it's it's like you're gonna be the of course that's you are there in a paradoxical kind of way you are gonna be their image of femininity you know in the, i've never thought of it that way because that's what and I think it makes sense, you know, who you are around and who you become friends with and who you get yeah. to appreciate in that way. Of course, it's going to make sense in that fashion. One thing I should probably mention as far as um, martial arts. So Cambodian kickboxing, um, how, you know, you hear so much like the number one Southeast Asian thing that you hear in terms of combat sports outside of Southeast Asia is Muay Thai. You hear it from kind of like Thai boxing. When you look at Predal Serai, it looks very similar, right? There's like, it's still a combat sport that uses fists, elbows, knees, kicks. So the basic rules are pretty much the same. Uh, Do you see any substantial difference there? Or do you feel that it's just the same that what becomes popular as uh, Thai boxing in one place? You know, there's the each everyone kind of in Southeast Asia has their own version of it or do you feel the differences stylistically are substantial enough or what's your what's your read on it? I'm almost scared to answer this because I might start a political war. Right. <laughs> Especially what's what's going on with I the saw that. games in Cambodia. You wanna tell people who don't know about it? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole debate on whether Muay Thai or Pradal Sarai came first. Right. And if we're gonna go back historically you know, what's written was that Pradal Sarai was there. Right. And it was the kingdom of Cambodia before there were other Southeast Asian countries. In my own personal opinion, I think the fighting si- the fighting styles are similar, mm-hmm. almost identical. The only difference is, I guess to the naked eye, it'd be exactly the same. But to a martial artist or someone that studies, you know, kickboxing or Muay Thai or Pradal Sarai, the techniques are different. Mm-hmm. And in Cambodia, with but also today, there's more of an emphasis on the elbows and knees. Right. And we have, we put more emphasis on a clinching game, like yep. a closer game. Yep. That's what I like the best. 
I find, uh, and, and it's funny because when you look at a lot of uh, Muay Thai gyms around, they really are kickboxing in the literal sense of kickbox. Like they use primarily hands and feet. Yeah. And to me, it's like, eh, you know, I mean, if you want to do that, there's 10 mil, there are all sort of kickboxing that are based on karate stuff. There's also, to me, what makes the Southeast Asian styles unique and exciting is exactly the clinching game, is exactly the elbows and knees, the... And not only I find it useful, never mind in terms of practical application, because of course, when you are not gloved up, you punch with a fist, there's always the danger of breaking your hand, whereas elbows and knees, you don't have that problem. But also I find it, I'm blind as a bat, so once I take mm-hmm. my glasses off, long distance game, it gets tricky. I mean, granted, I don't need to see you well, as long as I see, I'll hit the guy in the middle of the tree I see there, but you know, it's like, to me, it's like I like the, the clinching game because it allows you to slow things down. You know, it becomes a game where it's a striking, but it's also grappling. And, you know, you can be to a place where you are controlling the opponent in a way that puts you in a safe place and you are relatively safe from getting hit if you know what you're doing. Yeah. So I always found that game the coolest striking part of mm. anything you know is like the punch the kick that's I, I don't know the long distance game is not mine it's just and it's not that there's anything wrong with it it's just not what i so i like the things that allow me to close distance and up nose to nose and five from there that's that's the game i like so i do like that in Predal Serai, what you guys do is you take the same rule set, the same available techniques, and you know all of them. I mean, you know how to punch and kick. This, but as far as specialty, you make it your specialty to focus primarily on the clinch. That's uh, that's a cool one. So, And yeah, what's happening now is funny because at the Southeast Asian Games, you know, because they are hosted in Cambodia this year, they decided not to call it Muay Thai because it's like, hey, no, this is, you guys don't have a monopoly over that. And of course, the Thai organization didn't take it well. And yeah. they they boycotted this year, right? They did. They didn't send their athletes and, yeah, yeah. threatened a bunch of other countries that if they, they go They also tried getting the surrounding uh, countries to also boycott yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also want to add on, I, I forget what the, not the BBC, but a really British news um, uh-huh channel reached out to us and there's a reporter and he had asked he, he wanted to interview my dad about his take story yeah. yeah his story but more specifically his take on what's going on yeah and he totally just wanted my dad to say something controversial of course when we didn't give him what he wanted he was like well what does he think about what's going on in cambodia right. and does he think and then he just flat out asked so what came first right. <laughs> of course because yeah. he wants the the stuff that gets the clicks yeah yeah. How's that going? Like, are they, does it look like there's more peace on the horizon there? Or is the <laughs> the Thai-Cambodian conflict there heating up on the, in the martial arts it's, world? It's still aggressive contention. Yeah, it's pretty intense. <laughs> Which is funny, too, because, I mean, the modern borders are modern borders. Yeah. You know, for the longest time, there was no Thailand neatly separate from, like, the kingdoms that have existed have shifted so much the borders over time that a ton of people would be Thai today, used to be Cambodian or are Cambodian today. It's like, come on, man. It's like, I always find it funny when there's that, because if you look at it in historical perspective, that's a little wider. Most of those borders don't make sense. You know, they are like, they are constantly being negotiated and shifted hundreds of miles one way or another. So it's like, 
but yeah, people get a little intense about nationalism and uh, <laughs> their thing being it and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. One thing that, again, for people who are not familiar with it, probably important to get a sense of what we're talking about. Because, you know, as part of your father's story, you know, he grew up, started training, became a champion in Cambodia, did a storied career in uh, kickboxing, which, you know, again, you know, you think, say kickboxing in the United States is... In Cambodia, it's like national sport, you know, it's yeah. like as big as being a football or a baseball star in the US kind of thing. So it's, and then the Khmer Rouge arrive, you know, in the 70s, the whole story changed. Now, for you or, you know, like most people are not going to be as aware of what the story is or what happened. So if you want to give like the one minute crash course on like, how dramatic of a change that was, the impact that it had on people like your father, on Cambodian society, kind of like what was the whole... Because, I mean, without understanding, and even not understanding at a deep level, but at least at the most basic level, the whole Khmer Rouge story, kind of hard even to figure out why is there such a big Cambodian community in places like Long Beach, why so many people had to flee, how has changed uh, the history of Cambodia in radical ways, so... You take it. Yeah. And going back to, you know, about why there's such a big Cambodian population in Long Beach, it's still something that I'm learning about mm -hmm. today. Like, my dad had a book signing at Barnes & Noble's on Saturday, and we had, th I think there are only three Cambodian professors at Cal State Long Beach, which is pretty, it's pretty small right. for it to be in Long Beach. But, um, and, and don't quote me on this, but I believe she said that there were, you know, it started off in the 60s when... Um, Cal State had sponsored a few Cambodian students to come out here, and right. then through that, just more Cambodians, you know, mm -hmm. people came and just brought their brought their yeah. families and etc. Yeah. And then the the whole Khmer Rouge story. If you were to give uh, to people who have no previous knowledge whatsoever the the quick spiel on what happened, what would you say? I would tell them that in 1975, a Cambodian communist group had taken over and they had the highest power um, of the government and they also referred to that time period as year zero mm -hmm. so they wanted to eradicate everything they wanted to start fresh they wanted to kill anyone that had any knowledge they wanted to kill anyone that had authority the Khmer Rouge they were the authority they wanted to kill anyone that essentially had um, power mm -hmm. which I think is one of the things that's so puzzling for anybody who has visited Cambodian or been around Cambodian communities because while you know yeah there's a passion for combat sports and things but overall you look at Cambodian culture at least superficially the impression that a lot of people are gonna get is that it's a ridiculously mellow and pleasant and sweet and kind vibe to a lot of people you know there's this very in some way, very gentle vibe, you know, you see people smile in a way that's not the way you see people smile, you know, there's a, and then you think how that culture can produce the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian genocide, it's almost like there's a gap there, it's like, wait, how do we go from A to B, it's like, that's so much, it seems to be so at odds with so much of the rest of Cambodian culture that is downright puzzling, and yet, 
it did happen. I mean, it's like, I forget what the numbers were, but like the numbers of people killed in the genocide was crazy. I mean, it was a huge percentage of the population of Cambodia. That's the killing fields, right? Yeah. Killing fields, yeah. Yeah, there were about 7 million people living in Cambodia at the time. And each time I asked someone, it's like the numbers get only higher and higher. Right. First I heard 2 million, yeah. and two and a half million. During my dad's book signing, the professor was saying 3.75 million right. out of 7 million people. Yeah. I mean, they just want to really eradicate. I mean, yeah. you know, referring it to as year zero, just starting over. I mean, I remember... Uh, That's Rwandan levels. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, in, it's insane. And we're watching, like... Because uh, there was a whole, like... This is a purely musical stuff, but we're, we're looking on YouTube. There were a bunch of, like, uh, sort of psychedelic rock in the late 60s, early 70s in Cambodia. Really cool, by the way, because it sure. has a Cambodian twist, but it's also has a recognizably rock, psychedelic vibe. Oh. And... And yeah, not just that, that, you know, you have several that are fantastic musicians. And so there was a very vibrant musical scene. And so you're like, oh, this artist is amazing. And you Google them and you're like, and they were killed by the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. So you look at the next one. It's like, and they were like every single one. I don't think I've run into a single music. I mean, I'm sure there are, but, you know, the ones I looked up and I looked probably 10 in a row. Not one of them survived the Khmer Rouge. They also refer to that time period of the 70s before the genocide happened from 75 to 79. It was also known as the golden era, the golden renaissance of Cambodia. Yep. yep we were yep. thriving. I, I also just read that, you know, Cambodia or Phnom Penh, Phnom Penh was known as the pearl of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. No, and you can see it. I mean, you see it in the music, you see it in the faces of the people, in the clubs, in the... Z- it's, it looks amazing, and yeah, then something really dark takes over, which in some ways directly, t- actually not in some way, it's, it is very tied to the Vietnam War, because one of the things that gave uh, the Khmer Rouge an open was the fact that when, uh, during the Nixon year, they started uh, extending the war, not just in Vietnam, but started bombing in Cambodia, which was totally illegal, by the way, because the war was super because the problem was like uh, North Vietnamese army and Viet Congs ran weapons and training camps in Cambodia because it was on the other side of the border so they wouldn't get hit Americans decided screw that we're gonna bomb them there anyway but we can't tell the Congress so we'll do it secretly mm-hmm. and they started bombing and of course once you start carpet bombing left and right they killed a ton of civilians and in the process of killing a lot of civilians and the fact that the Cambodian government couldn't do a whole lot about it, not about stopping the Americans and not really even about stopping the, the North Vietnamese army, it weakened the power of the government at that time. And in weakening, it pretty much opened the door for the Khmer Rouge to come in and do their thing. So there's a direct tie between the American bombing in Cambodia and the rise of the Khmer Rouge which is, uh, that's one of the reasons why, I don't know if you ever saw that quote, there's an um, Anthony Bourdain quote saying now, uh, I forget the exact wording, but basically he says, if you have ever been to Cambodia, you will want to beat Henry Kissinger with a stick, <laughs> because, you know, Kissinger being the Secretary of State at the time, who pushed for a lot of the policies, and was uh, he was saying, you know, what happened in Cambodia, the tragedy of the Khmer Rouge, of course, you know, it's not to absolve all the responsibility the Khmer Rouge themselves, because ultimately they did it, yeah. but like people like Kissinger completely opened the door for that to happen. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's a really, like when people think about the history of the Vietnam War as affecting Vietnam, 
a lot more than that because really changed the history of Cambodia radically as a result. And then the Khmer Rouge were wiped out, what, early, early 80s by that point? Or the or? early 80s. Yeah. Yeah, early 80s. You know, if you ask my dad about, including myself, but when we were interviewing my dad about the book and about the specifics of the war or mm-hmm. the Vietnam War, he just, he'll tell you, I don't know. There's right. still so much that I'm learning about the war today, including my dad. But also my, my dad doesn't really acknowledge the American bombings. I think mm-hmm. a lot of very patriotic Cambodian Americans Well, don't. I mean, it makes sense because it's like his uh, way out yeah. was in U.S. Yeah. The way he rebuilt his life is in U.S. So he probably doesn't want to be like... Oh, by the way. <laughs> Maybe he, he felt like he was betraying America. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Where the reality is, you know, the people who sponsor and made it possible for him to come over are not Henry Kissinger, you know. Those are not the same <laughs> as America, you know. It's like there are different sides to it, right? It's like right. saying Henry Kissinger was a piece of shit is one thing. Saying uh, there were very nice people who helped out in making things possible for Cambodia immigrants, that's also true. It's not that one denies the other, right. you know what I mean? They're both true. They are, that's what it is. That's the. But here we sit in modern times with CPAC, Republican-leaning folks calling for the eradication of trans people. Yeah. Out loud with those words. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's trippy with uh, this black and white mentality of like if you approve of something, you have to say that it's all great, or if you disapprove of something, it... uh, I mean, today I did, uh, and sorry, I'll open and close this <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> we'll just, but like I, I put, um, because I did an episode of History on Fire on this guy, uh, Ungern von Sternberg. He was this guy who in, the 19, in 1920, he conquered the capital of Mongolia at the head of his own private army. And this dude was nuts, right? Mm. He was nicknamed the Bloody White Baron for a reason, because he mm. was as brutal as a psycho guy as you could think of. He waged this extermination campaign against Jews. He wrecked havoc throughout Mongolia. He was... And, but one of the things that he had is that he, among the people he hated, there was the, um, the communist government that had taken over in, uh, in Russia. And, you know, when you look at the history of the communist government in Russia, yeah, you have very good reason to hate those guys. You know, there's mm. terrible, terrible things. But rather than acknowledging that, it's like I saw, like when I posted this thing, I wasn't even thinking it was controversial. And I saw several people on uh, replying like, well, he killed communists, so he's a hero in my book. It's like Hitler killed communists. <laughs> Does that mean he's a hero? It's like, what the fuck, man? It's like, can you acknowledge that, yes, the communist government was awful and that this guy was a monster? It's like they are both real at the same time. It's like, why do you have to go either or, you know? And that's just, it's strange how the human mind works, you know? We like our stories to be simple. It's yeah. either this way or is that way? There's no... And they're never simple because no. as I've heard, as history went by, Southeast Asia was never going to fall completely communist. And if it did, the hatred of the different countries would kept it separated anyway. They were never going to bond together. They had 2,000 years yeah, I mean, and warring even, against each other. And look at even Vietnam, right? Yeah, exactly. It became mm-hmm. communist. Yep. It wasn't Soviet Union. It was something else entirely, you know. It was like, but of course, Khmer Rouge, different story, you know. So it's like, it's, yeah, it gets really complicated. It gets really, and I understand why. But yeah. Is Angkor Wat affected by the Khmer Rouge's rule? Did they wreck it or anything? Or is it still? 
amazing? I wouldn't know. I'd love to go someday. But. Yeah, as far as I know, it's like still, they didn't mess with that. That's actually weird because you would think they would be like the Taliban, right? Exactly. Bombing all the right. ancient stuff. And especially if you want to erase everything, that's like classic Cambodian symbol of the past. Maybe they didn't get enough around to the TNT <laughs> <laughs> to blow up the place. Cause, uh, we got murders to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After we kill a few more people, we'll get to that. Go back. <laughs> Yeah, I was for your dad and for you going with him, returning to Cambodia, because he hasn't been back, you know, it's like his first real time. I mean, I know he had a minor quick flying, help his friend get out, but like that was the first time he really went back. Yeah, and actually going back to Angkor Wat, he went for the first time ever last when we had gone together. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Which, that was profound for the both of us. I, I had gone back to Cambodia numerous times, maybe eight times, oh, eight wow. or nine times. Oh, wow. Each time I go back, I'd ask my dad to come with me. He'd have the same excuse, which was, I don't have money. Yeah. Then when someone from the student would say, well, I'll offer to buy your ticket. Yeah. And he'll go, actually, I'm afraid of flying. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's always an excuse. But, you know, the reality is he just didn't want to, you know, go back to the homeland that he had to flee from. And yeah. How did he, so did he come over one of the boat lifts or how did he get here? When, what when do you he, mean? When he, when he left. Left Le- Cambodia? Yeah, yeah. Sorry how did that. he get here? Oh, so... After Cambodia, he went to the Philippines. And from the Philippines, he went to Chicago. So that was the process, kind of refugee camps, and then it's gotcha. Gotcha. Is the reason that collection of folks is in Long Beach, was that a landing site for the boats or... Yeah, I'm I know, not sure. I know it was that a massive I, amount of people came over on for it. sure. Like, I think like one of the things that what she was mentioning is that it's the classic thing that happens everywhere, right? Like when you start a small community somewhere, then if you have to go anywhere in the US and you don't know one thing from the next, and you hear that they're like, "Hey, there's a hundred guys there from my country. Let's go there." Yeah, and you, then want, you want familiarity, building. of course. Yeah, of course. And that's how they. That's how all the Chinatowns usually are born. That's how actually everything, because I mean, these days, not so much, but when you look at early 1900s US, everybody at their ethnic neighborhood where all the new people coming in go there, right? And it's, but yeah, that must have been trippy for your dad and I guess intensely emotional to go back and, well, intensely emotional where he could take breaks for all the various ladies he was dating, but like, <laughs> other than that, yes. <laughs> Another story in of itself. <laughs> right. Going back to Cambodia for the first time with my dad. Um, God, I can go on so many tangents just because, I mean, I still, I still think about it. I mean, every day mm-hmm. I wake up and I'll go, oh, wow, I really went back to Cambodia with my dad. And again, you know, I've already mentioned that I've gone to Cambodia a few, quite a few times. The first time I went to Cambodia, actually, my mom was trying to marry me off. Really? For, for some money. Oh, yeah. for real? For real. She was for like, real. <laughs> she was like, "Hey, do you want you want a way to pay for your college?" And I'm like 18 and desperate. I'm like, "Sure." She's like, "All right, let's go to Cambodia. Marry you off to some rich Cambodian man. He just needs citizenship." <laughs> that's another story. Wow. Yeah, but that's pretty common too. Well, but I mean, okay, that's not really marry off. It's just citizenship. No, no, you know, yeah, it's I'm just, like, yeah, I'm also just teasing yeah. a bit. I actually. I'm into your mom's plan. I think yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, pay for college for just sign a marriage well, certificate. My and mom was also trying to sabotage. You know, in the book, I think we really do villainize her. Okay. But she really wanted more of the the profit herself. Right. We're going to Cambodia. Again, that's another story. But anyways, going back to my, you know, going to Cambodia with my dad. Yeah, it's like I had to reintroduce my dad back to his homeland. Mm-hmm. I think it was... A, not I think it was a trippy experience for my dad to you know go back to his home country which he hadn't gone to in over 
you know, 50 years. Wow. Nearly 50 years. And for his daughter to show him around. I'm like, yeah. Oh, Dad, this, this street is here and this is there. And he'll ask me. Because he had been way more recently, of yeah. course, and several times. Yeah. Yeah. How was it for you to go back? Like, not go back because you had never been before, but like the first, not this time with him, because of course you had been already several times. Like, you just decided, screw it. That's where my family's from. I want to go see it. And your dad was like, okay, see you. I'll be here holding pats at the gym and come back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of how it was. You decided and you made it happen. And then he was like, okay, whatever. And then eventually you dragged him along. <laughs> yeah. I, for, so the first time I went to Cambodia was when I was 18 and mm-hmm. it was with my mom. Mm-hmm. The second time it was with Adi. Mm-hmm. He was filming, he, want, he was trying to film a show but that didn't end up working out. I so desperately wanted to go to Cambodia because I was, then I was dealing with so much internalized racism of wanting to be disconnected from anything Cambodia or, you know, being disconnected from the Cambodian community. Really? How yeah. come? Yeah. Just getting teased by kids growing up. Oh, uh, I see. You know, just dealing with that. Also, you know, going into colorism of just, you know, with Southeast Asians being, you know, more tan or darker. I mm-hmm. also so badly wished that I, you know, could be lighter. Just hearing comments from my mom. I know. Isn't that That's nuts? It's so fucking crazy. It is fucking crazy. It and really also, is. going back to, you know, every time I go back to Cambodia, it's like, Jesus Christ, everyone's getting lighter. And yeah. all the women are wearing the long sleeves and the hat. And it's like... Yep. Fucking Southeast Asia, take yep. the damn long sleeve off. It's a hundred degrees out. What are you doing? And I'll go back there, and they're like, "You're so tan." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm also we're Southeast Asia." Exactly. Yeah, it's know? like that's how it's supposed to be. For, <laughs> yeah. Dangerous. People are, are bleaching their skin to, yeah. with the, you know, to like, the extremes of just. What do you think it is? Is it uh, wanting to copy Western standards or is it an internal thing? Because it's like traditionally also has always been like upper class lighter because you don't work in the fields, whereas lower class darker because of course you spend all day outside or... Yeah, it's that. It's like a classist thing. I think it's a hierarchy thing, you know, because, you know, back then, like, you know, if you were darker, you know, people just assumed you work out in the rice fields. Of course. Right. So I think that's what it really comes down to and also just what we see in the media and generally so it's a combination of kind of an internal thing like class structure and then you know you watch Hollywood movies and everybody gotcha yeah yeah it still trips me out till this day it really is it's really fucking weird I mean Sana staying now she uh you know, growing up, yeah, she had the same thing. Like her mom was constantly about, you know, wear long sleeves, and it's like it's it's fucking hot. And it, but even her, like thinking for a really long time, because especially she's like extra dark, even by Southeast Asian standards, and uh, always having this sense that there's something wrong, mm-hmm. that they are not supposed to. And you know, in talking to Khmer people, she got the same vibe over and over. How so many people have this thing of wanting uh, darker is bad. And, you know, everybody's dark. That's the reality. Everybody has pretty dark skin in Cambodia, you know. So it's like, and having to go through bend over backwards to try to erase that and make it. uh, So, in fact, that's actually one thing that she has been big on that she brought up a few times is Mm. how much that's bullshit and how those standards are just crap, you know. it's Because it's really like it's this self-hating thing that people grow up with and they perpetuate without really questioning and it's terrible you know because it's like yeah you take some 
you know, it's a nation where most everybody has pretty dark skin and you are supposed to feel bad about it. Like it's like some sort of original scene. It's like, the fuck is that? Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, that's rough. Have you been in, like, how was it for you to transition out of that? As a child, my mom would, she used to make a lot of comments, you know, same with Neri. Oh, you know, cover your skin. I'm seven playing outside, eating worms. I'm like, I'm supposed to cover my skin. It's it's hot. I'm also a kid playing outside. But I think as I rebelled and as I rebelled and as I've gotten older, I would, you know, combat against my mom. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, I've always had a smart mouth of, you know, Cambodian, you right? Know, you're also tan. Yeah, you're supposed you know. to be brown, <laughs> right? <supposed> to be brown. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't make comments anymore. Also, even going back to Cambodia, my relative, my Cambodian relatives will go, "You're very dark," and I'll go, "Shouldn't you be?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's let's, let's, let's uh, not use as much bleach on our skin. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, have you seen the sun in the last? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets really intense. We have some really heated conversations. Really. Back in Cambodia. Yikes. Yeah. That's rough. It's pretty. It's pretty harsh. It's pretty rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to going to Cambodia for yeah. the first time at eighteen, I went because I was so desperate to be in touch with my roots. Because mm-hmm. for so long I combated that. Yeah, I didn't really want to be in touch with being Khmer. I didn't even want to speak Khmer. I I didn't really want to acknowledge that part of me. Yeah, just who I am. All of me. Of course. I think one day I was. I think it was the first time I had taken shrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After eating shrooms, I just had all these revelations and epiphanies about myself and life. And then I was like, yeah, I, I, I have to go to Cambodia. Mm-hmm. To keep it short, I was like, mushrooms. Right, mushrooms told you, go to, to Cambodia. Cambodia. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> yeah. And the mushrooms were right. <laughs> it <laughs> turns out. Right. Okay, good to know. <laughs> so it worked out for you. In, uh, that's awesome. How old are you now? 22. 22, yeah. So you're kind of, it's still kind of part of this process for you to figure it out all how you were raised, who you want to be as an adult, as you are. And that's, man, and you did this thing with your dad. That's super fascinating. That's like, a, that's a great journey in itself. There's one thing that you guys opened the book with that I thought was the coolest thing ever is uh, her uh, great grandma, uh, her father's grandmother this saying which is so simple and so perfect it goes be calm be kind be brave it's like hard to beat that one you know yeah that's be, fantastic be calm be kind be brave that's a that's a life's philosophy in what six words right there mm-hmm. I, I like it a bunch because it captures you know it's like kindness without bravery is often is weak uh, bravery without being calm can be, messy. you know, messy. And uh, so those three things, you know, those seems like a fantastic uh, three great pillars to base your life on, right? Because if you miss one of those, uh, you're st- you can still do good things, but there are problems, you know? This could be the progressive mantra we've been looking for. Right? Be calm, be kind, be brave. I love that. It's so simple and so beautiful, you know? It's, uh, it's great. Other stuff you want to jump into or do you want to wrap? What do you think? I want to share a really comical story of my dad during his his glory days in the ring in Cambodia. All right. Let's do that. What year are we talking about? Jesus. We might, I, I forget Must the year. Must be 60s, at most early 60s. 70s. That's close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the end of the 60s, early 70s. Before the troubles arrived. Yeah. Exactly. Before the troubles arrived. My dad was fighting in Olympic Stadium, which is one of the bigger 
maybe it might even be the biggest um, stadium in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. I mean, this thing could fit thousands of people. My dad's in the ring. He's fighting his opponent. I forget his name. But, and you know, my dad was very promiscuously debauched. That's the simplest way I can put it. <laughs> Polite way, for sure. <laughs> he had three baby mamas at the time. Wow. Yeah, maybe more, but that he knew of. Three. Two of them ended up coming to his fight. He'd only invited one of them. The other one showed up. Next thing you know, people are crowding these two ladies and all you see is two ladies handing their babies off because they had already given birth. Oh, wow. Hold my baby. And give their baby off to these random people <laughs> in the arena. And they start fist fighting over my dad. <laughs> my da- but my dad didn't stop fighting. He kept fighting. Of course. So fighting in the ring. And there's also fighting in the oh, actual stadium hilarious. itself. Hey, hey, hold my baby is <laughs> the best. <laughs> hold my baby. Y'all calm down out there. One fight at a time. Oh, that's and you know awesome. people were betting. Oh, no. Yes. I got the short one. Just, yeah, oh, that, the one in the ring we know is winning. This one looks interesting, though. Let's yeah. figure out. That's hilarious. That's yeah, a wild no. one. Yeah. I had to tell them all to be calm, be kind, be brave. Be brave. Yeah, that's a good one. Other... <laughs> either stories you want to get into or things about anything that you know is like take it in any direction you want well I want to add that you know everything that I do is for my dad mm-hmm. I mean this book made me so tremendously closer much closer to my dad and just my family really I was never really ever family oriented mm-hmm. but after this book came out I yeah I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything that's happened and again, I, I really want to put emphasis on how much I never really looked at my dad, let alone my parents, but just my dad as more than just my dad. Sure. I never looked at him as someone that also had hopes and dreams and passions and hobbies. He was just Omri the kickboxer, but he's also my best friend. And I mean, and you do bring it up in the book, like there's also, it was tricky because clearly he grew up, not only he grew up as a fighter, which in and of itself, it creates certain, a certain mindset. But, you know, growing up, like having to deal with the, the Khmer Rouge and all the drama that that entailed, of course, by the time he came here, never mind by the time he had you, he carried a ton of PTSD, which, of course, would, uh, like you do bring up how sometimes, you know, he could be the sweetest guy in the world, and then he would get this rage moment, and you'd be like, whoa, there's another vibe there that's a lot. Uh, and, you know, for you... Is that something that also have you able to kind of negotiate over time better in how you see him and how you like understand where he's coming from and deal with all that? Because of course there's uh, it's tricky, right? When the people you love the most are also can be scary and disturbing in some way. You go like, whoa, how is that the same person? And yet that's the reality for a lot of people. How's where are you at with that? Like, how do you feel about it? As my dad's gotten older, he has had less of these rage fits right. that I would talk about in the book. It's bittersweet for me. I am relieved, but I'm also really sad. Relieved because I don't have to endure the emotional abuse or the verbal abuse anymore. 
but I'm also sad because my dad's aging, so he doesn't have the energy to yell <laughs> right. at me anymore. Yeah, he doesn't yeah, have yeah. the energy to curse <laughs> yeah, me out anymore. Of course. That's the, where it gets really <laughs> conflicting for me. Right. You're like, come on, yell at me a little. A that little means bit. your energy yeah, is there. Yeah, I think like, I still kind of poke at him. Yeah. And when he just goes, I'm tired, I, I feel like the asshole. Right, oh, right, right. Yeah, like, you are 80. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, that's a crazy thing that, yeah, he's a pro- he, is he already 80? He's approaching he, he's 80? He's turning 79 tomorrow. Okay, so he's, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, you look at him, he's still in the gym teaching. He's is in good a shape as one could ever hope to be at 79. So it's like, in that sense, he has had it good, you know. It's like, and of course, some of it is what not he has had it by luck. Also, some of it is what he has done, you know, spending his whole life being active and all of that. But also, some good luck mixing the pre- like he had. If like you told us, uh, you were telling me before we started recording how he and Danny Nosanto was, of course, a legend in the martial art world. You know, Bruce Lee disciple, one of the key figures in uh, bringing Southeast Asian martial arts to the United States, Filipino martial arts in particular. You know how they get together on a regular basis and they are holding pads for each other and training. And, you know, your dad is turning 79, you know, Santo is 86. And it's like, look at these guys. They are in in a shape that I think most 40-year-olds would be happy to be in. You know, most people half their age would be like, I would pay in gold to be like that. And these guys get to do it in their late 70s and late, in in Santos' case, late 80s by now. Damn, that's something, you know, just seeing that is inspiring because it's like in that sense, they've had it as good as it ever gets for anybody, in at least in that department. And in your dad's case, I guess, in the ladies' department too. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I also... I still don't think I understand just how big my dad is, is, was, is. Master Dan had said to me a few weeks ago, we were sitting down, it was after they had just finished their like hour and a half uh-huh. training session. And he goes, your dad is freaking Omri Ban. And I go, you're freaking Dan Inosanto. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> your dad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's awesome. That's so sweet that they get to do that. That's fantastic. I love yeah. that. Were there okay. any balloon hats made during the writing of this book? Oh, yeah, because that did. <laughs> oh, God, lots yeah. of it. There were lots of balloon hats. Just because we did a lot of the writing interviews at Sophie's Cambodian Restaurant. Right. And we would just sit there for hours. Sometimes we wouldn't order anything. We'd maybe get an iced coffee. And, you know, um, it was like Persuasion, a D would just make balloon hats just for, like, the owner's kids. Of and course. And they'd be really thankful. And like, okay, you guys can still use our Wi-Fi. You use the space. Use your space. It's fine. That's awesome. Yeah, because I guess uh, we didn't mention it yet. Like, yeah, Kotor Indies has been Abdi, who has been our guest in a previous episode. When when was that? Like, just a couple of episodes yeah. ago when we did Too about bad. his... Uh, his balloon book and explorations around the world. Rich is still raving about that episode. He had so much fun with it. Nice. It's, uh, and it was just nice to see how terribly things have changed, you know? With camera phones, you could never do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the fact that they had to make decisions because we got 20 rolls of film for the next two weeks. Mm. You cannot mess around. Now it's just like, click, 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 click. Oh, I got one good one. <laughs> it's just changed so much you know one thing that caught me by surprise in that episode is uh, Andy's sense of humor because he's so he can be played so dry oh, and yeah. then you stop to think about it it's like 
well, that was really funny, you know, but he doesn't sell it. He keeps it very understated and he'll say this thing and then you go like, oh, that was hilarious. So it's like, he's, he's a really funny guy. Cool. Well, thank you so very much for being here and chatting with us. And uh, for everybody, yeah, check out the book. It's a fantastic story. As so said, it's a story of fighting and fucking. So you can really beat that. The twin pillars are all good entertainment. So the book is called I Am Omri. And uh, check it out. I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the episode notes too. too so in case um, you guys want to just get it that way, you can find it in the episode notes. Beautiful. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. Well, the funky music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast. That was a fantastic interview. I learned a whole bunch. Beautiful. Anything else we need to throw out there for the sweet folks? I'd always mention Kiva.org. We're approaching, y'all, it's going to be $250,000 you guys have loaned out to the world. We're probably about 12 months away, but it's an amazing thing. I never thought we'd make it to 5000 That's amazing. And, uh, you know, if we get a quarter million dollars for these folks, I think they owe us a t-shirt or two. So has been, we'll start uh, working on that. It's has been like... 11 years. We've been 11 years, and Kiva's been seven Oh, less. I thought he was almost from the beginning. Okay, no, a little later. Okay, cool. But still, absolutely amazing and always appreciated. So org. give a stranger some money. Upset your uh, hardcore Republican friends by helping out a stranger. They hate that. And um, let's start taking care of each other. Let's do that. What, what have we learned this week? Be calm, we- be kind, be brave. Yep, words to live by. See you guys. Would you like to hear a terrible story? Yes, always. One day the rod shall teach you. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielli at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! All right, let's go to rehearsal. We'll roll on this one. Oh, no.